This is Dr. Michael Gordon, and you're listening to The Mind Whisperer on Podbean. Welcome to The Mind Whisperer. This is Dr. Michael Gordon. It is April 26, 2021. This will be episode 77 of the Mind Whisperer podcast here on Podbean. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. I have a very good friend uh, going back about 15 years or so. Um, David N. Meyer is an author and screenwriter and, and cineast. And uh, really excited to have a conversation with him. Before we get started today and launch into our topic, um, I want to remind you that you can find us on Podbean. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes and uh, everywhere else that uh, you can find uh, podcast content and download it on your phone, listen anywhere, and uh, also uh, soon to be subscribable on iTunes. So I'm looking forward to setting that up. Uh, in the meantime, we have today's show. Uh, and the topic of today is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, creativity, and the liminal edge of madness. That's a hefty title. It's a topic that I've been talking to David Meyer about for, well, over a decade now, almost two decades, and uh, finally got a chance to sit down with him uh, face-to-face over Skype and have a conversation. Um, and we're going to probably do a, a part two because this was just so... Uh, rich in in terms of the the range of topics we covered and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So without ado, let me introduce David N. Meyer, who is now based down in um, uh, New Mexico. He's a cinema studies professor, formerly at the New School in New York, a screenwriter and author of several books, uh, notably uh, Twenty Thousand Roads: The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music, The Bee Gees: The Biography. And A Girl and a Gun, The Complete Guide to Film Noir. I'm going to zero in on uh, the Graham Parsons book and just give you a brief intro intro because we didn't give any background on Graham Parsons. For anybody who um, doesn't know who he is, he is really a key influential figure in in what became, uh, you know, a very broad um, and eventually mainstream, um, you know, musical influence of Americana, um, otherwise country-influenced folk and rock. In the 1960s, um, Graham Parsons was a member of the International Submarine Band, then the Flying Burrito Brothers, and um, and then of course uh, the Birds for a brief stint, and uh, then had a brief solo career, recording career anyway, um, before he had an untimely death. And um, as David notes in his book, you know, he's He's more broadly known, you know, tragically uh, as, you know, kind of a footnote in rock history because of the the circumstances of his death. Um, He made a pact with those close to him that he didn't want to be buried. Um, He wanted to go out, you know, in a flame, so to speak, and literally. And he he asked that his body be interred out or or burned out in the the desert Joshua Tree, which is uh, uh, in the desert of California, outside of Los Angeles. Um, and so that became sort of, you know, the, the notable thing about people who didn't delve deeper into the story. So I really encourage you to uh, pick up David's book. It's by Villard Press, which is a subsidiary of Random House 
Um, it's a fantastic read. It's a hefty read. It's 500 pages. Uh, but if you have any, you know, interest in in Americana music and its roots. Um, Graham Parsons is a fascinating character. Of course, he became very close with um, Keith Richards at the time that the Stones were recording Exile on Main Street in, in um, uh, just off off the shore of uh, Marseille in France at uh, Nelcott, the, the villa that they rented. And, uh, you know, quite um, probably... Um, co-wrote, um, if if not credited, uh, Wild Horses and maybe other songs certainly had a huge influence on Keith's writing, and uh, and bringing in you know hardcore country music. Uh, he was Graham was a big fan of you know the progenitors of the of country recorded country music, um, going back to the Leuven Brothers, but uh, then moving on to the Bakersfield sound with Buck Owens. And, you know, some of the key songwriters in the Nashville scene, like George Jones, um, Patsy Cline, etc., those recording artists, um, and really wanted to bring the, the, the gravitas of that writing and uh, its you know, legitimate roots in American folk and country tradition um, to a wider audience. And so he did that kind of fearlessly um, in bars and you know, watering holes all through the United States that anyone that anywhere he could get a stage um, and wrote some just heartbreaking, you know, wrenchingly heartbreaking and achingly beautiful um, songs. If you've ever heard uh, the song Sin City or uh, She or Wheels um, and presumably the most famous song that people might know and not attribute it to Graham Parsons is the song Love Hurts, which was you know abominably covered by Nazareth. Um, but it uh, uh, posthumously won Graham uh, um, a Grammy um, for his duet with uh, Emmylou Harris. At the time, he was uh, still alive and recording with the Grievous Angels, his band. So without any further ado, um, I'm going to turn it over to our interview. I hope you enjoy it. It's a long one, but as I said, I think it's uh, fertile ground for a lot of interesting stuff. So enjoy. David N. Meyer. Welcome to the Mind Whisperer podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have you. I've been um, wanting to do a chat like this with you, not necessarily formally, but I'm really happy to do this on the podcast. And um, just to give people some background, um, you know, I've already given your your uh, professional bio out, but Dave and I go back quite a number of years now. Yeah, uh, a long time. A long time. And... Um, so today's uh, topic is, I've titled it Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Creativity and the Liminal Edge of Madness. So couldn't be a more perfect title for the kind of conversations that David and I have. And just uh, maybe unbeknownst to some of the listeners, uh, they know me as a host of this program, which talks a lot about um, you know, sort of psychological insights. I call it spiritual psychology. Um, we delve into culture, you know, all kinds of broad range of topics. But I also am a singer, songwriter, and have been a filmmaker in the past, documentary filmmaker. You may not have known that. Um, and done some, some uh, I got into digital filmmaking, you know, in the late 90s. And, um, you know, been an actor um, pretty much all my life. So the, today's conversation kind of is folding in a lot of personal experience. And I thought a good starting point might be Going back to 2007, um, this was sort of a, when I was 
just starting my master's program, which is when you and I met, right. doing some research. And um, I, at, right after, I think probably right after we spoke, maybe before we spoke, I, I was setting up to do a documentary. I can't remember if we talked about that. Mm-hmm. I don't know the timing of it. So I, I had been a singer-songwriter my whole life and, and a professional recording artist and um, I had a big opportunity, long story short, um, to work with a big producer, and it was around 2003, and that's when Napster hit, and the whole thing just collapsed. Right. And so there was still an opportunity to do what I'd done my whole career, which is be an independent singer-songwriter and um, you know raise money and that kind of stuff. But on this scale, it was a big undertaking. So um, I felt quite crushed, and then I thought of another idea. Um, to do a documentary and, and a recording project based on producers that I had connected with. Um, and I thought that'd be really interesting, something that the Foo Fighters actually ended up doing later on, this whole series of traveling to different studios and different Yeah, studios. I watched that. Yeah. So that was an idea I had back in 2004. Um, so by 2006, 2007, I was really itching to get back out on the road. Uh, you know, I'm an indie singer, songwriter. How am I going to do that? I don't have any backing. And I bought a, I bought a motorhome. I decided I was going to get in this motorhome and, and do a road trip. And um, right that time, uh, on the scale of things now, looking back, that was Katrina. So in terms <laughs> of disasters, you know, that was the biggest thing happening, <laughs> which was a huge deal. And uh, so... Uh, I thought, well, okay, where, what's going on with me? What's going on in the world? And I was at a personal crossroads. Um, there, there was this big existential crisis and political social crisis with the, with the hurricane and what it meant in the midst of the Bush administration. And and so I thought, well, why not pile into my into my motorhome with a camera and go and shoot a series of interviews with other, mostly musical artists, to talk about how they make a life you know and some of them in rich some of them poor but creatively speaking people hit their own crossroads even if they've hit you know successful milestones and i kind of lined up some ideas and made some contacts and then the crossroads theme was really came into the fore because of you know the robert johnson story and um and heading down into the delta where you know the katrina really struck hard and so one thing led to another i, I didn't end up going down and and shooting this thing it would just have been logistically really really challenging you know going to the states by myself um and one of the one of the there are two quick stories about what prompted this idea one was a number of years earlier seeing alejandro escovito um who was a singer songwriter guitar player uh, way back from the punk days in the band called The Nuns um, and then um, Rank and File and then a, a really lauded uh, 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 independent singer-songwriter in his own right. And I saw him in, in Vancouver probably in the late 90s and something really struck me that struck me before seeing a, a live artist is that's the guy. Like these people have this kind of, you know, mystique and this history and and you're and you stand there looking and going, I'm watching the guy like this is the guy of thousands of miles. We'll get into your your uh, Graham Parsons uh, biography in a minute. Twenty thousand roads. And then the second one was seeing Sunny Rhodes in Vancouver here in a legendary uh, blues club called the Yale Hotel. And um you know, Sunny Rhodes is this you know legendary blues artist. And the guy was probably closing in on 80 at the time and just blew the doors off the place and any any live act you can imagine 
and uh, you know, famous for his turban, big white turban, bejeweled turban, and 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 a 50 foot long guitar cord. And so he would walk out through the crowd, and walked out onto the sidewalk playing his guitar, like just playing his ass off. And again, I look at this guy and I go, this guy's been playing and doing. You know, this is probably one of the better gigs he's done. You know, on that on this kind of you know blue circuit, his whole life. And you know, I just thought, like, how, how do you make life out of that? If I may, yeah, please. I saw Sun Ra's orchestra right mm-hmm. before the COVID shutdown. There was not one guy in the orchestra that was younger than 78. And saw them at a wonderful club in L.A. called called Zebulon. And two things surprised me. One was it was completely sold out. Mm-hmm. And the other was everybody in the crowd was either our age or was under 20, uh, under 30. Mm-hmm. And somehow Sun Ra, who I had always loved and been obscure my whole life, had found a younger demographic. They had found him, something mm-hmm. about online accessing it. And, you know, everyone in the orchestra is still wearing their costumes, you know, their crazy space age Egyptian costumes with the wild hats and the and the long gowns. And, you know, they were not sitting still holding guitars. You know, they were blowing their brains out, yeah. saxes and trumpets and trombones. Yeah. And, and they had a keyboard player. And you just couldn't believe the life and energy and vitality in these guys. And you couldn't believe how they blew the minds of these young kids. And what triggered the memory was at one point, they did the old Chitlin circuit thing of walk in the room. And the entire horn section, you know, three quarters of the band that was mobile, came out and walked through this packed small club. And just the, the looks on these guys' faces, you, you know, here were men who had never done anything they didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they had decided to play this insane, as fringed out jazz as could possibly be from the moment they started playing it. And they made all the sacrifices necessary to do it. And here they were with a rabid audience that knew their music, knew every song. And they, they were just having a ball. You know, and they had been playing these songs for 50 plus years even though the songs in in many cases are just frameworks for insane improvisation. Mm -hmm. And some of the songs are older jazz tunes with genuine melodies, but both the joy and the discipline and the rigor. And, and as we're talking about some kind of fundamental uh, transcendent derangement (laughs) to play that kind of music. There's a book title for you. Yeah. And in the arena that that music requires. And as you said, he was the man. I was just looking at him thinking, I mean, these are the guys. I first saw them in college. Wow. And I saw the same band, the same guys, except wow. for some raw, you know, maybe a couple of editions in 1995. You know, that's a 50-year span. I'm realizing now, going back to my research for my master's degree, which was something I stumbled across, which is this concept of duende. Okay. And duende is the, Sp- the Spanish term. It's kind of dual uh, translation. It means, you know, a malevolent spirit in your house, a hobgoblin or, a, you know, poltergeist. But it also means your fire, your soul, your, your daemon. And uh, so I think this is a, a subject that's fascinated me my whole life in terms of the determinism that forms the life of an artist. And, you know, people who have money or people don't have money, people who have options or don't have options, they end up living these lives of you know, fearless creative output, and you know, to the detriment of their health, their families, their marriages. 
or if I may say, or the, the demon takes another path, they end up drug addicts, they end right. up pursuing self-destructive things, because as John Lee Hooker said, it's in him and it's got to come out. Yeah, so this is kind of how we're kind of going to find our way through this conversation, and perhaps a, you know a good starting point because I went back to your masterful biography of um, of Graham Parsons, um, which is called Twenty Thousand Roads: The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music. Right. Um, brilliant book, Villard Press, right? Which is a, an imprint of uh, Random House. Of Random House, and the book came out in two thousand eight. 2008. Have you any up any uh, upgrades to it, or uh, not upgrades, but you know? No, no, it, it stayed as. <laughs> well, it didn't need any. Um, for anybody who doesn't know the book, please go out and get it. Even if you don't have intimate knowledge or even peripheral knowledge of uh, of the artist uh, Graham Parsons, it's it's a it's a a brilliant um, biography. You know, I've, I've written many many biographies in my life, but uh, really exhaustively researched and beautifully written. Thank you. Beautifully written. Um, and Graham Parsons, uh, maybe we, you can give us a, a you know a, a synopsis of Graham because he's he is a good case study in what we're talking about. Guy came from a you know from a, an affluent background, um, southern kind of gothic you know family, um, and certainly didn't have to work and but certainly didn't have to uh, go through the kind of struggles that other people went through trying to forge a path in, in you know as a musician. Yeah, this was a constant issue for Graham and his bandmates is that he had enough money to do anything he wanted and to buy all the drugs he wanted. Mm-hmm. And so he he lacked a certain fire of ambition. He had a daemon for sure, and it drove him to a very specific kind of music, to country music, to the lamentations of country music, to the, the soulful sadness of country music. But it also drove him to drugs, and he was profoundly conflicted between his urges for self-destruction and his urges for creativity. Mm-hmm. So he is the perfect example of the sort of Dionysian madman who had these profound gifts that he just could could harness only at certain intervals in his life. He could only get it together at certain times. And the money also gave him a kind of laziness. So when you think about, let's say, Byron, who's always one of the first people that comes up as a romantic, doomed you know, mad artist. Byron had a lot of ambition and Byron had output and Byron liked to his leisure, but Byron was determined to be someone. Mm -hmm. Graham never quite had that fire and it led him to be derailed often. And then the work he did produce is so beautiful and so heart-wrenching that of course the question with Graham is always, well, what, what could he have done if he got out of his own way? Mm-hmm. And then to me, that always leads to the fascinating question of the, of the rare artists who don't get in their own way and how remarkably rare they are. And, you know, Poe, at Ground Poe, he, he wrote a lot about the imp of the perverse. I think we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. that he believed everyone in us had a, an imp that drove us to do the perverse thing, drove us to do the atavistic thing, drove us to do the thing least in our own self-interest drove us to get in our own way. And Poe thought that imp was as strong a drive as hunger or sex, the drive to get in our own way. Mm-hmm. And he thought every adult had to cope with this in some way. Well, that is what the daemon is. It's, it's a, it, it, it takes the face of something that will eat you alive or something that will propel you to greatness, right? A duende. And you look, I mean, we can count on one hand the artists who seem to have never gotten in their own way. 
Miles Davis never seemed to have gotten his own way no matter what he did. He never thwarted himself creatively. So you're talking about in terms of generating creative output. And I'm also ta- I'm talking about the battle between generating creative output and generating reasons not to create. Finding ways to let the imp of the perverse win and to get in your own way so that your output isn't what it should be. And I mean, every artist um, berates him or herself for not having the output he or she should. I'm no exception. And, and that's my point is that there are so few people who don't end up wrestling with that demon and who always find a way to put their work out. Did we talk about uh, James Hillman's book, The Soul's Code? No, no, we didn't. This book's been really influential on me, and it came out uh, again in the 90s. I don't know the exact date. Probably about um, – I'm going to say 98 or 99 around that time, maybe 2000. I've used it in both my doctoral uh, thesis – or my doctoral – both my graduate thesis. Um, and James Hillman was a, a really noted American uh, psychologist and Jungian, right. but really heavy on the archetypal Jungian mythological side. And also, you know, a poet. And the Soul's Code explores a really fascinating um, paradox. And the paradox is this, or the, or the comparative point of view. On one side, he says, if we take the modern psychological view in terms of uh, what determines the path of someone's life and the life of someone who implodes, you know, creative person, for example, you can take Freud's understanding that their inherent drive, albeit for self-destruction, you know, ends up with that fatal outcome, right? It's a fatal flaw. And certain people will compensate for something early in their life, and you can see it later in their life. So he gives an example of uh, Winston Churchill. So Churchill, when he was a boy, stuttered. Right. Had a horrible stammer. And yet... Uh, Churchill overcomes this, you know, childhood, you know, inhibition or, you know, affliction um, to win, lead, you know, Britain through the darkest hour, right, to defeat the Nazis. To become, and more, become one of the greatest orators. Of all and one of the greatest orators, absolutely. And so Hillman explores through this story um, a really kind of a fascinating notion, which is that, that Plato had a completely different idea of you know, the individual determinism or life path. And Plato, Plato's idea was what he called acorn theory, that that we come into mortal life from the immortal plane, and we forget. We cross what he called the planes of forgetting, and we end up in mortal form. And, but what is within us, our greatness, <clears throat> is already there, like the acorn has everything that will become the oak tree. And so he, he posits... What if on some, albeit really unconscious level, we do have some deep inkling of who we are to become, and that's what holds us back? So, I mean, we as, fear the fate that we were, were born with? or Yes, or to, to, to step into. So what if from the acorn point of view, as a young boy, Churchill had some kind of unconscious notion that he was to do something important? And that created a stammer, right? And he goes on to very, very interesting. It's an interesting, really interesting uh, thesis. And so he goes on to give a number of of, of, uh, examples. It raises the issue of of the inability to face one's own greatness. Well, that's where I wanted to take a tangent from this idea of you know in your book because I just went back to your to to the Graham Parsons book. 
and you know really read through carefully um and you know that note that you that we that you landed on about um whether basically how to manage your own you know your own atavistic impulses as you say right that imp um so you know that's one way of kind of evaluating the greatness of an artist is they don't get in their own way right that's 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 operating on the presumption that uh that your you know your your various uh, drug or alcohol afflictions are a byproduct and not necessarily a driver of your greatness right well this kind of takes it into a different tangent and this is more about trying to manage your psychological or spiritual psyche Right, and so another example that Hillman gives is the the uh, great Spanish bullfighter Manolete. And Manolete, when he was a boy, um, all the other boys would play bullfighter out on the street, and Manolete was really terrified and didn't want to go play, and he literally hid behind his mom's apron strings. Well, Manolete, at the age of 33, died in you know a glorious moment of you know. Right. Uh, became Spain's greatest bullfighter not that I'm a fan of bullfighting um, and died, was gored to death in the ring and so again the Freudian point of view says he overcame his childhood you know, fears but the acorn theory says what if you know, you know the fate that you're about to be born yeah, into better. And, yeah, and he knew better and, uh, and then there's another kind of twist on it where uh, Hillman talks about um, the Kabbalistic models so in the Kabbalah um, the in terms of understanding the relationship between the mortal and the divine, uh, the tree of life is actually inverted. The roots of the tree of life are in are in the divine in heaven, and the tree grows down to earth. And so angels descend down the tree of life to take mortal form, and in this mortal form, he talks about Judy Garland, who wings is a, of desire. Yeah, exactly. A deeply tormented being, you know, exceptionally talented. I mean, he writes about Judy Garland, rightfully so, as one of the most multi-talented, you know, modern performers. Um, But just completely paralyzed, uh, you know, not to mention her life circumstances and and, uh, the marriages that she was in, but with alcoholism and, you know, doubt and what other psychological afflictions he had. But he characterizes this as as, as that immortal being struggling in the human form. And I think that that's a beautiful metaphor, if not a, you know, kind of model, a different a different way of getting at what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. And people always talked about Graham as an angelic figure. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the Plato model is interesting when you think about Coltrane, who took these incredible leaps forward and, and died relatively young. You know, did he have an inkling? Was he pouring everything he could into breaking every boundary he possibly could? Because he had some inkling of the of what was coming. Right. I'm just going to look something up here quickly. Okay. Yes, of course. Uh, just to refresh my memory. Um, so it was uh, it was Lorca who gave a famous um, lecture about. Duende, this concept of duende, which is your your daemon or your internal spirit, right? In 1919, I believe it was, and um, and w- the, he he earmarks this delineation between classical form 
and the modern. And the classical is writing about transcendence. It's writing, you know, it's it's baroqueism. It's uh, writing about the firmament and the transcendent. Uh, you know, it's like a platonic kind of view, right? Right. And the and Duende is more earthbound. It's more writing. It's the blues. It's writing from the inside out. And so that's another interesting kind of, uh, you know, kind of divergent point of view and a way a, a way into this uh, examining this issue of uh, not getting in your own way. You know, we can look at artists of trying to aspire to something transcendent. You know, uh, all the great artists in some way, shape, or form are trying to speak to something in the beyond, right? Or reach some kind of ideal of beauty or expression. Well, I was just thinking about this, uh, the idea of Duende, and we just mentioned the film The Conversation. Right. And The Conversation is sort of the absolute archetypal example Francis Ford Coppola, 1974, starring Gene Hackman. Yeah, it's a film about an eavesdropper, Mm -hmm. a professional eavesdropper whose greatest terror is being seen in any way. Right. And so he took the thing he fears the most and tried to protect himself from it by becoming the uber observer. Right. Since he never wanted to be observed. And, of course, he he brought his fate upon him. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really interesting in terms of the Duende concept, that his way of dealing with that terror was the thinking that if he watched everyone the best he possibly could, no one could see him as the watcher. Well, it's the illusion of control. I think that that's exactly. ubiquitous. Yeah. I think that that's a universal theme, that the things that we do to try and stay sane, right? And maybe that's another well, good thing. The things we watch. do to try and avoid actually admitting what our fears are, of course. Or our greatness. Well, so exactly. See, I think I have a theory which goes to that, which is nothing freaks adults out more than the arrival of good news. <laughs> I think adults are well equipped for bad news, but good news shows up and people just run for the exits. Right. And I also think, as you say, people, most people have an innate terror of their own excellence. And if you're not raised with a great deal of love, it's very hard to escape that terror. Hence, writer's block and using drugs and alcohol to free the creative self. And this idea of, as per the title, pursuing madness as a gateway to, to creation, to creative to creative acts, because it's so hard to embrace one's own excellence and gifts that people just can't do it in a, let's say, in a more objective view of their, their selves. They have to obliterate the self in order to let the creative aspect out. Yeah, it's called academia. well the other the other keyword in the title is the the liminal edge of madness and creativity and and the liminal edge and i think the liminal edge is what we're talking about i you know my idea my theory of that is that it's not just my theory but i think you know kind of evolution from an evolutionary point of view and we share this trait with all creatures that we are at default Certainly, in terms of our, you know, neurobiological function, always scanning for threat. Yes. We're creatures of survival, but at the same time, we we that our evolution is predicated on an ever expansive sense of empathy, social cooperation, or pro-social behavior, right within the pack or outside of the pack. And and what the Dalai Lama says is, you know, universal compassion. All, all beings have compassion, right? Because they want to live, they want to survive, and they want their kind to survive. And I think that that, that um, balancing point is the thing that people, everyone struggles with, we all struggle with. 
I think that you're right. I think the balance point between between protection and connection. Mm. Well said. Yeah. And so this liminal edge is, you know, for artists, I think that artists are are they pulled or are as you say beautifully in in the Graham Parsons book, and he was just an, an exquisitely sensitive being. And to me, that's the core of what it is to try and when you talk about trying to get out of your own way is trying to manage those two sensibilities. Well, you know, Proust said it's a disease to feel too much. Mm. And the exquisitely sensitive beings can just be paralyzed by the extent to which they feel. And the battle between protection and connection is pretty much resolved by just rushing into interiority. Because that 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 um, overdeveloped sensitivity makes it so difficult to connect, because the overly sensitive feels so exposed in the first place. Yeah, and we and we overdevelop. I guess we we kind of um, we we find our own individual ways of streamlining, you know, our sensitivity into manageable what we think are manageable ways. And, you know, going back to the conversation. As I think, as we talk about it more, I mean, more of the brilliance of that of that script and that film come across, and the performances come across, that this juxtaposition between this technician whose job is to listen with the highest acuity, right, and and and, and the least empathy to, or compassion, and empathy or compassion in the story without giving any away, no one has seen the film, is uh, he's a he's a a bug man for hire, and um, as and it's. Until the end of the film, it's, and I would say ultimately, it's it's left very ambiguous what the nature of, his, of that assignment is. Right, and he, and he always says, I don't care about content. I'm not morally responsible for content. Neither I just so. gather it and I sell it and that's it. Right. And but it we don't describes know his way a, of interacting also. We don't know if this is a if this is a intelligence agency contract, a corporate contract. I mean, it kind of right. becomes clear. But anyway, there's it, it, the, again this juxtaposition between this loner whose job is to sit like you and I with headphones on and and be dialed into the you know the micro you know um, expressions of you know people's conversations and their and their you know and uh, and there's a scene where they've come home from this conference and it's midway it's about three quarters way through the plot. And Hackman, it's coming to this crescendo in Hackman's own life and his character's life, Henry Call's life, professionally and personally. And um, he's realizing that something has gone horribly awry um, for the second time, as it turns out in the storyline in his life. Right. And they throw a party in his in his workspace, in his loft. And uh, who turns out to be the femme fatale corners him in the moment of the party. And it's just trying to engage him in this intimate moment. And he, he just paralyzes under the intimacy. Right. He so doesn't again, know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the human condition is, is, again, trying to find some kind of balance between tenderness and resilience. Or tenderness and protection. And I guess protection is, you know, or defense, you know. Mm-hmm. And thinking in terms of Graham, he's a guy who never developed any protection. You know, he hid behind drugs, but never was able to protect himself in some functional way. And the stories of him being with the Stones recording Exile on Main Street, and you see how, let's say, Jagger and Keith Richards so chose the protection end of the continuum. And he did not. 
and how he just couldn't stay and function in that environment. He wasn't tough enough. And what protected them? Oh, I would say their own willfully acquired armor that could, they had made compassion for others a far lower um, priority, and they had also made exposing their interior selves a much lower priority. But Graham never seemed to develop any armor in that way. Yeah, it seems to me like Jagger and Richards, like you know, you can see it through their artistic oeuvre, but also in their personalities and the stories about them. Yeah. There are people who lived large. I mean, they lived the gamut of, you know, the human sensibilities, right? They weren't completely closed down individuals and, you know, opaque, you know, sexual escapades or their, you know, their psychedelic experimentation or, you know, you don't become an artist of that greatness without going to those far-reaching places. Yes, I think that's true. And I think... I think that Graham in some ways was very conventional. Well, he he had to obliterate his consciousness to get to those far levels. Right. Whereas if we're using Jagger and Richards as examples, it seems like they wanted to be more acute as they got to those levels. And Keith liked heroin to understate wildly, but it never seemed to prevent him from experiencing things. It didn't seem to numb him particularly, whereas Graham sought the numbing it could provide. That's why Graham wanted it. Yeah, there's a there's a an author, a psychologist named uh, Jack Engels, and about 35, 40 years ago, when, when there was an emerging or becoming uh, discourse around Buddhism and psychotherapy, he wrote a piece um, that got him into a lot of hot water with people called "You Have to Have a Self Before You Lose One." Mm. And he had to come back later and, and amend that statement because, of course, it's very contentious for Buddhists that there is no essential self. Um, but I think that he was making a, a, a more practical point that you have to have some kind of identity before you start to unravel it. And this is true of people who go into you know, deep spiritual work or meditation or retreat and are prepared for the kind of psychic morass they may face in in undoing the structures of their ego. Right. And I think of another anecdote or, or you know, story here is, is uh, Jim Morrison. And from what I've read, you know, Morrison's dad was a, I was like a rear admiral, right? Or a vice yeah. admiral in the Navy. So again, came from this like, like epically, um, hierarchical and and moneyed and established family, with all the expectations of following in military service and you know rank and and then how that plays out as being the son of you know that kind of you know Lear. Right. You but know. see, Morrison to me, the more interesting—not to say more interesting—but among the fascinating aspects of Morrison is this: that growing up, Morrison was a an overweight, picked on, uh, bookish outcast. Hmm. And then one day in his late teens, he started doing speed and dropped an incredible amount of weight and was suddenly hot. And the author E. Babas uh, writes very tellingly about the pathos in the difference between being born beautiful and assuming you are beautiful and how the world responds to you and becoming beautiful and having no way to cope with it that Morrison's self-image was that uh, lonely outcast picked on nerd and suddenly he was an object of desire 
and he had no idea how to assimilate it, what to do with it. This gift had been given to him, but he had no idea what to do with this gift. That's and, an interesting angle because I, I had read that regarded as a gift. I had re- I'd read that some of his psychosis was, if you want to call it that, was down to what he said was his personality being greatly scaffolded upon other people, like his father, and trying to undo that. So that's That's another angle on it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also, he really liked drugs to his detriment, but he didn't seem that well equipped to deal with them. Yeah, and you make a really good, you know, like an unflinching point in in the Graham Parsons book, um, which I think you could paraphrase eminently better than I could, um, about how unseemly Graham, uh, Graham's death was. There's nothing romantic about it. No, I, it's funny. He was I laid ways to drug use, right? I had had a fairly censorious uh, epilogue in which I talked about just the horrible waste that what Graham, of, of Graham's death by heroin. And I had two close friends who were not drug addicts, but they had been alcoholics and were very involved in the program. And they talked to me a lot about uh, having more compassion for him in that situation. And they, they really opened my eyes to both the dreariness and the inescapability of addiction if you don't try to deal with it and what addiction does to you. It becomes, it becomes something else. You become something else. Yes, you become, that's right. You become something else. And it did just seem so fundamentally tragic that he never had the people or the resources or the interior fire to get out of his own way. Well, you know, in terms of uh, mental health, you know, one of the diagnostic measures or criteria of people who are serious uh, psychiatric disorders and people who have uh, otherwise psychological disorders is what they call insight. So if you know you're having hallucinations, you know, there's a certain point of workability around it. See, now you get to something really fascinating, which is uh, I'll give you my short version paradigm. Short version paradigm is good country music. It's all your fault. Great country music, it's all my fault. And, <laughs> and one thing that marks great country music, and Graham was especially good at this, is that the author of the song, uh, Patsy Cline was really good at it too. Uh, George Jones was great at it. Buck Owens was great at it. Um, Hank Williams was great at it. Is the artist recognizes their flaws and what they are doing wrong and recognizes the damage they cause and recognizes they're powerless to stop it. And that's what the greatest country songs are about, is that insight, but also admitting they're powerless in the face of whatever it is, whether they're the running kind, whether they need a bottle, whether they need drugs, whether they just can't connect. They do see it, but they're singing about their own helplessness in the face of it. And Graham did that, I think, almost better than anyone. But it's one of the most fascinating things about the pain in country music is it does have that insight. Yeah, and to me it sort of speaks to, again, the issue of sensitivity and particularly empathy. You know, empathy is a really interesting uh, trait or quality, empathy and vulnerability, you know, and particularly for people who fall prey to drugs and alcohol, you're talking about a narcissistic injury, right? An injury of self, an incomplete sense of incompleteness of self, an inability to, to connect or to receive love or to, to know how to manage, you know, and relationship. And 
Um, so people who are overly empathetic, for example, you know, um, in the way that you're describing where it comes out through their artistic work, you know, that uh, tonight the bottle let me down, you know, it's sort of uh, self-effacing, you know, they're, they're, they're expressions of their own inner struggle. But they also turn out to be assholes <laughs> because they, they're, they're also incapable of recognizing how other people want to connect with them and help them as well. Right. right. So they become overly defensive back to, you know, the Hackman's right. character. I want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of physiology and, and uh, neurobiology of, of addiction and how that plays into it, because it does um, – it does kind of overlap with what we're talking about. Um, I went to an article in uh, from a 2011, July 26, 2011 edition, online edition of Scientific American. And um, the author, David uh, Biello, is interviewing a neuroscientist from John Hopkins named uh, David Linden. And he goes through some interesting um, scientific points um, based on current research around the brain and addiction. And he says, you know, it's it's the genetic predisposition to addiction is only about 40%. And what that is, is that if people carry um, or have deficits or in um, or are carrying genetic, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for, deviations for um, uh, dopamine receptors, which are called the D2 receptors, then, um, then they are predisposed to not having enough dopamine in their system. And dopamine goes with well-being and and uh, and um, happiness, the capacity to feel joy and happiness, which is a sign of mental health. And so this is really uh, kind of an, another kind of uh, tributary in this conversation about trying to manage one's way and how artists, um, you know, are kind of like the canary in the coal mine right? in in walking these fine lines. Um, so what this uh, scientist David Linden says is that the hallmarks of people who are uh, lacking in these D2 receptors or dopamine resistant or what uh, is called um, uh, blunted dopamine hypothesis is that if you carry those variants, you're mo- more likely to be one of these three things, risk-taking, novelty-seeking, and compulsive. Because all those things generate dopamine. No, all those things are signs of people who are trying or yes, yes. They generate that crave dopamine. Right. Risk taking, being compulsive. Yeah. And so the 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 um wanted to dovetail that with talking about the twenty seven club, the so called twenty seven club. Right. So, you know, is there's cause this is also comes up in this article and this is something I've always been fascinated by, is all these artists um, you know, pack it in at 27 years old. Hendrix, Joplin, Robert Johnson, you know, Morrison, on and on and on and on. Parsons. And Graham, Graham was two days short of his, shy yeah. of his 27th birthday. Um, so Lyndon says there's nothing magic about the age 27, statistically speaking. Some people suggest that there's a, a statistical spike at 27 for alcohol and addiction. No. He says that um, is, the brain matures at 20. So at 27, you've you've got the adult brain you had it seven years prior. So um, so to me, it has something more to do with managing that daemon. And at 27 years old, the confluence of trying to become who you are and shake off who, you've been, who and what you've been shaped by up until that point um, are the measure whether you get out of your own way or whether you immolate. 
Hmm. So you see it as a pivot point. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Yeah, and we I know mean, that, like, we know that, you know, people like Dylan and talk about his early output. He said, I could never write like that again. Well, he's not on speed anymore. Right, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> he just couldn't handle that level of speed is what he said. Maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was Jagger's argument, or not Jagger? It was Richard's argument that this that the the coke is what you know kept him in the studio and kept him awake. Right. So in terms of generating output, but you still have to generate greatness. You know, you can be on speed and write babble. Yes, if you look at at at, at Dylan and Godard, they both had these parallel periods of incredible output. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard, the film director, at almost, exa- in almost exactly the same years and at very near to the same age. And both of them put out masterpiece after masterpiece, and yet both of them haven't continued. They are not in their own ways. Some of their work is great, some of it's shite, some of it's in between. But just the sheer longevity, you know, the resilience. And Dylan was never a guy who was going to OD. Never. You know, he was always much too tough. You know, there's a there's a new is it a Ken Burns documentary? No, I don't think so. But there's a new documentary about Hemingway. Yeah, that's Ken Burns. It is Ken Burns. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. I saw the first part, but I'm not that compelled by Hemingway. So right. uh, I saw the first part of it, didn't watch more. But you know, they say the thesis of that documentary, what I've read, is that Hemingway developed a concept of what an ideal man was, and then pretty much killed himself, living, try, attempted to live up to it, and as to say the obvious aloud, you wear a mask long enough, you can't take it off. And mm-hmm. then when he began to fail to live up to his own standards of manhood, they credit that with coming to his suicide, leading to his suicide. Now, you mentioned in, in the Graham book that, if I'm, if I'm remembering now, that a lot of artists seem to kind of wear this mask as, as an ode or an homage to, to the beat era. Or to the jazz right. artists. That's right, and and to these to great junkie artists, great junkie writers. Mm-hmm. Graham was very intrigued by burning out, not fading away. Mm-hmm. Intrigued by artists who did burn out, who managed to destroy themselves. You know, Charlie Parker is a really good example. Mm-hmm. You know, the great artist who lived as fast and hard as he could, and took as many drugs as he could, and died from it. And the whole tradition in the jazz world of, in terms of dealing with demons, although they certainly never put it that way. The idea that there was a rite of passage in dealing with heroin. Yeah. And if you could deal with heroin and still create and move through it and be as good as you were, that you were a true artist. There, there, there was a whole legend built around this idea that you had to cope with heroin one way or another. And that was a very, you know, jazz age idea, um, 50s and you know, early and mid-50s idea that that heroin was was this gate you had to pass through and then still be able to function. It was strong, and I, it was a strong idea in New Orleans culture, too, New Orleans music culture in the 60s. Yeah, you know, and I, I go back to this idea that, you know, again, from, from the work I do in addiction and, you know, my research, and that we do know that um, children who have adverse experiences, childhood trauma, um, which which aren't necessarily what we call capital T trauma, you know, like major traumatic events, but um, interiorized trauma. That's not to exclude, you know, horrible situational trauma like, you know, child sexual abuse or, you know, physical violence or war or poverty, any of these things. But the internalized violence of a family 
the disorganized self, right? Um, things that later come out as, you know, mental illness, right? Schizophrenia being one of them. Um, that they that they shape us not just psychologically, but in the way I alluded to earlier, um, neurobiologically, so that we are deficient in dopamine or serotonin and and we, that because those things are produced and developed in our neural pathways grow along experiences of vulnerability and connection right. and empathy. And so certainly there's a predilection, you know, for for who we know to become artists um, to try and compensate for some of those adversities or traumas. Right. And they're going to be drawn towards heroin, not just, you know, stylistically, so to speak, <laughs> you know, as a as a as a cultural thing, but but anesthetically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I and I, I read I I quoted this uh, educator in my in my doctoral thesis, who made this comment about the opposite of of aesthetic is anesthetic. <laughs> I said that was brilliant. It is brilliant. So for those who did grow up in a very anesthetic society, and are you know who are longing you know for for the aesthetic, there is a relationship with the anesthetic, because in, on the path to creating aesthetic work um it well can it's be, yin yang isn't it or, yes. or a mobius strip if you will right the desire to be sensitive enough then to somehow harness energies in the midst of that sensitivity and to protect yourself somehow from how much you feel while still trying to express what you feel mm. it's such a tightrope yeah you know there's um and to be true to oneself well that too mm. there's there are artists, we can all think of them, where you see a certain, I mean, Amy Winehouse is a good example. Or or even better, let's say, um, um, oh, the great classical pianist, uh, Horowitz. There's a, a live in uh, Moscow recording of Horowitz. And the, the record opens, the concert opens, with him playing a piece that starts with a single note. Right? He just plays one note. And he plays that one note, and your first thought is, God, I hope this guy has somebody to tie his shoes and buy his groceries because he's too sensitive to function in this way. <laughs> because he was hard with, he's protected. And then you take the great New Orleans piano player, James Booker, who had exactly the same level of sensitivity, but was a heroin-addicted madman. He didn't have anybody to protect him. He had to go yeah. out with all his sensitivities and try and cope with the world. And, and of course, he couldn't. Yeah. He, was, he was far too sensitive an artist to ever have to deal with tying his own shoes, and he made sure he never had to. And so that's an interesting question too. But that you you see certain artists and you recognize their level of sensitivity leaves them so vulnerable and dysfunctional, not in a drug addicted kind of way, right. but dysfunctional because they just can't see it. They can't grok it. How are they yeah, supposed to tie things. their shoes when this music is compelling them? So there's two liminal edges. There's a, there's this sort of what you might call the spiritual or the supernatural liminal edge, right? Which is the contact with impermanence or the contact with 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 uh, infinity you know and that's sort of the creative stream and then there's the liminal edge of the social liminal edge living in the world and trying to manage that aspect you know think of someone like Glenn Gould right who decided not to live in the world yeah yeah he, he tried it was just too much work yeah yeah he tried it was just too much work and he also discovered that the thing he was best at was too much work for who he was. I don't know if I mentioned this in one of our previous conversations. My, my dad ended up becoming a, a physician, but when he was finishing up, his his idea for his thesis was to try and track 
through the music notation how Rachmaninoff lost his mind. Now that's really interesting. And did I mean, he attempt a, that? I, I think he started to look at it and realized it was, if not just from the musical side of it, the scholarship would have been, you know, that would have been a big undertaking, you know, right. just to kind of track. But, you know, as an overview, I think it's a brilliant idea. This reminds me of my favorite Beethoven story. You know, the, the documentarian Elra Morris, who made Thin Blue Line, A Brief History of Time. Right. And he was at one time a cello player and mm-hmm. so fascinated with classical music. And he was at the Beethoven Museum uh, and was allowed to examine original scores. And he found a number of uh, passages where Beethoven had pasted those tiny strips of paper over X number of bars because he had written in changes of what he had made and wanted to paste over a strip to put something new in. And Errol said that there were eight or nine, he would find places with eight or nine of these strips taped over one another, stacked up. And every one of them had the same thing down to the original idea. Really? And that, to me, that is the, the perfect metaphor for the perfectionism that can paralyze creative people, too, especially creative people that you described as undergoing either a milder or severe childhood trauma, that the perfectionism is paralyzing because you've been taught as a child you have to be perfect all the time. So it's very hard to do creative work because you're always holding it to a standard that's impossible, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. is also what fascinates me about the artist's who keep growing and changing and making these huge mistakes and have no fear of perfectionism, Miles always being the one that comes foremost to mind. And here's Beethoven tormented by that same idea. And, you know, Beckett said that writing is a disease of approximation. And Beckett's famous quote of fail, fail again, fail better. That was his idea of the creative process. But I think that it goes with this tightrope we're discussing between protection and compassion that this uh, bugaboo of perfectionism can be really paralyzing too, because to say the obvious aloud, the fear of not being perfect in the work is of course the fear of not being perfect in the self. And the people who are willing to be imperfect and growing and changing don't seem to have that terror. Well, there's that trifecta of, of you know, motivational, not motivational, but the traits that uh, that the scientist uh, David Linden is talking about, the risk-taking, novelty-seeking, and compulsiveness or compuls- compulsivity. And it seems to me that there's a there's got to be kind of a, a give and take between those qualities. So as you describe... You mean um, to escape per- being paralyzed, there has to be a give and take. Absolutely, because if you're over-compulsive without balancing that with a sense of risk-taking... Right. If it's if it's perfectionism for perfectionism's sake. Right. You know, Dee uh, Dee Ramone said that heroin addiction was for people who are terrified of the way they feel. Right. Because if you're an addict, you always know how you're going to feel. At this time of day, you're going to cop. You know, you're going to feel great. At this time of the day, you're going to feel shitty. And whatever you go through in those arcs is worth it because you you always know what's going to happen. Your emotions are never unpredictable. And you turn to drugs to avoid the anarchy of your own emotions. That's interesting because you're trying to you're trying to minimize the the unpredictability, but what you're actually trying to manage is the overwhelm. Yes, that's right. That's right. You know, uh, there, there's a growing number of people out there, clinicians and researchers, and I count myself among them. One of them being Dr. Gabor Mate, who's up here in Vancouver, has become world famous. You know, he's a doctor who uh, treated people in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Wrote a book called. Um, in the realm of hungry ghosts about addiction and 
Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought there. Anyway. <laughs> it was about That's overwhelming, a, avoiding being yes, overwhelmed Yes, well, the trauma, the trauma, here's a story about God. Was, sorry, the title was In the Realm of? In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Thank you. Which is a reference to the one of the Buddhist uh, levels of hell, right? Um, or realms of existence, I should say, pardon me. Um, so uh, the podcaster Tim Ferriss uh, was, interviewed uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, and, and I heard this, uh, I was on a flight, and I was looking for something to listen to, and um, and I like Gabor, and so I was listening to this interview, and, and Tim Ferriss says, I've you know, been wanting to interview you for years, I'm really excited, and he said, I've listened to you over the years, and you've, you've mentioned a number of books that have been really formative for you, and, and he said, let's go through a few of them. And so he landed on a book which was pivotal for me um, it, by Dr. Alice Miller, who's a German psychiatrist, called um, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Right. Yeah. It's all about how children internalize, you know, um, nonverbal cues from, from their parents in infancy um, and, and infer all kinds of uh, – create all kinds of uh, – um, cognitive distortions about who they are or just affects of, you know, neuroticism um, because the parents aren't emotionally attuned or carrying their own trauma. And so it's mimicry gone wrong, essentially. And so Gabor Mate says, oh, it's interesting. He says, uh, and, and, and Gabor Mate, by the way, is, was a survivor of the Holocaust. His parents perished, I believed. Um, he was from Hungary, grew up in Budapest. And um, and he was one year old when, when the Nazis invaded and started gathering people. So he was born into trauma, serious trauma. I think his grandparents or his aunt and uncle took him in and, and uh, protected him, and he lost his parents you know, pretty much right away. And and so he said, you know, I, I avoided that book for years because I just couldn't relate to the title, you know, drama and gifted child, and it just it never seemed to resonate with me. And he said, then I found out that the original German uh, title, this was written in German, was The Prison of Childhood. So then I went back to the book. <laughs> yeah, I have to read that book. I have I have dabbled in that book, but I haven't read all of it. I want to read that book. And um, the uh, the guy who, who had the three criteria, did that come from a book? Or is that more in his general papers? It or? does. Thank you, for, thank you for prodding me on that. Because um, I'd like to get that title also. Yeah, the book is called The Compass of Pleasure. How Our Brains Make Fatty Foods, Orgasm, Exercise, Marijuana, Generosity, Vodka, Learning and Gambling feel so good. There's and the book. author's name is? Uh, the author's name is David Linden. With a Y? L-I-N-D-E-N. Great. Yeah, I'm very interested. And I want to read The Soul's Code also, which Soul's I have heard of for a long time. And, and maybe we talked about it years ago. And I haven't read it, but this conversation really makes me want to read it. And then I think, you know, if we kind of turn the lens around a little bit, we talk about people who endure, people who live until there's, you know, well into their later years. You know, we look at people like Leonard Cohen, even Dylan, you know, but from my personal point of view, I relate more to Leonard Cohen's writing as he got older. And he wrote some of the most brilliant stuff he ever he ever came up with. And there's a tormented soul for you. No kidding. And a soul and a guy who liked drugs as well. But he never, it seemed he never wanted to destroy himself. That he I wanted think, to enjoy himself, but he never wanted to destroy himself. I think I think Leonard Cohen's, even by his own admission, his his what saved his ass was his ability to see the process he was in, in the way that you were describing earlier, people can't. Right. 
and 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 that they are able to see the you know i guess on a good day the irony of the situation which is that what you do to try and escape you know becomes more of a trap it's like the the buddhist parable about the um the monkey trap you know that uh there, there's a there's a, a trap that has a piece of fruit hanging in it and the monkey sticks its arm in right. to grab the banana but it can't pull it back out right. and that's a, that's a description of you know human nature of how we grasp things right but that which right. we grasp enslaves us and there there are two great stories about Leonard Cohen when he went to his um, the the monastery that he lived there for five Mount Baldy yeah yeah where three years. Yeah, he was. Someone interviewed him during that time, and was asking him about the transcendence of existence there, and all and all that. And Cohen said to him, "Are you crazy? Look at what we actually do all day. This is for people who can't deal with anything else. <laughs> I'm here because getting up and going at three in the morning, you have a bowl of rice, and then I'm going to sweep. That's just perfect for me." Yeah. And the other great story, maybe you heard that he tells us that he felt it was time to leave, and he'd been there a long time, right? Years. Yeah. And he went to his Roshi and said, you know, he had a whole long explanation prepared. And he started off by saying, you know, I've, I've been here, I've invested in being here, and I think it's time for me to return to the world. And he inhaled to start his whole explanation. And his Roshi said, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> the other side of that coin is, is I met this young woman who. I can't say who she is, but she told me a story about traveling. She's a you know privileged person from North American person who traveled like many young people do to find her way spiritually in the Far East. Right. So she goes to a trek to, to uh, I think it was Nepal to see, to seek this guru, and she drags her boyfriend along, and they're hiking to you know they fly thousands of miles, and they're now hiking up into way up into the into the mountains. And he leaves, she leaves her you know weary boyfriend in the in the camp and hikes for another three days finally gets to this cave and there sits this you know tulku or whatever and Rinpoche and he's right. you know weathered as the rock and he's got as many teeth as you know as there are blades of grass you know poking out from the rock he's a million years old and so she finally gets her audience with this with this person and he just stares at her for what seems like an eternity just looking right through her and she's waiting for this pearl of wisdom to fall out of his mouth. And she's waiting and waiting. And finally, he's looking straight at her and he says, you are so lucky. <laughs> All right. That reminds me of my Girl, favorite. Girl, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> reminds me of my favorite Sufi teaching story. A guy goes to the Sufi master and he says, Master, I just want to tell you how pleased and humble I am that of all the hundreds of people in the courtyard buying to be your disciple, that you chose me. And the master said, easy, pal. We chose you because you need the most work. Right. Which is kind of akin to being told you're so lucky. Yeah. So there's, you know, we, we tend to look diminutively at people who, who burn out. You know, we tend to look at them with contempt or, you know, maybe it's projection People like Graham or, you know, that uh, that don't make it because we think that, you know, but the flip side of the coin is, you know, there for, for the grace of God go I, you know. So I don't think you can put any too fine a point on it. But I do think at some point you have to ask yourself, is 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 the greater path to endure? And it also goes to 
if, if we're here to find transcendence, what's the root? And for so many of these people, drugs and their creativity were the root to transcendence. Right. And they weren't going to, and, and as you said, the nature of their trauma, whether it's in some way ineffable and emotional, that's unidentifiable in some sort of uh, laboratory kind of setting, or if it's just straight up biological, well, they, this and this happened to them and it put them in this kind of dopamine position, or if it's some kind of horrible confluence of the two. Once they found that trigger and were convinced that that trigger was their way, whatever it was, that was it. Yeah. It's just it. You know, I, I got invited for two talks. Got invited back. I was very honored to get invited back to a, a psycho, psychology society of undergrads at uh, University of British Columbia. And I was bringing the perspective of being a, a transpersonal psychologist, psychotherapist. So it was a chance to kind of really unpack what transpersonal psychology is about, which, for those who don't know, is the unofficial kind of fourth wave of psychology, the third being humanistic psychology, um, most famously represented by um, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And then that begat, you know, sort of the person-based counseling and modern psychotherapies we know it. But it is all, you know referring back to this notion of what as you say what is the root what is what is it that we're looking for in transcendence you know um in as we're walking along as uh um that saying goes uh you know we're not human beings having a spiritual experience we're spiritual beings having a human experience tough to remember at times yes Teilhard de chardin i think is the one who's credited with saying that but that's dubious um it is tough. That is the whole. That is the whole road, right? Um, so then, if we, if we, it's interesting to sort of look at this struggle um, in 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 the container that we brought it today, which is <clears throat> somewhat of a kind of a really specific cultural context, right? It's psychedelic drug use. It's um, certainly narcotics, but within the the very modern. <laughs> You know, we're talking about 20th century framework. You know, doing a little bit of research for this, I I, um, I came across something I wasn't aware of, which is you probably know of, is the is the book that um, sort of begat the the modern confessional you know diary of a junkie, which is um, Thomas De Quincey's book, yeah, Confessions of an English Opium Media. Yeah. I didn't know this book. Yeah, and and very much the idea of the upper class person dabbling in these phenomenon right. and someone with a very clear sense of his self so he was able to write about when he lost himself when he disengaged from self he was able to write about it in a very grounded way that was from that era and from his class but going back to this idea of the transpersonal the transpersonal uh, psychology is, is you know largely influenced by uh, the far eastern traditions and ancient wisdom traditions and one of them being uh, tibetan buddhism and so in Tibetan Buddhism or in Buddhism in, in, on, on the whole, there is a frame. It, it really is, in fact, a framework for um, tantric study, right? And tantra being phenomenological experience or phenomenal experience. And that's what we're talking about. So without some kind of discipline through which to ground yourself, to experientially explore the far reaches of human experience, you know, um, you can lose your mind, you can lose your way. And so I think that this, this 
trend that we're talking about in in modern culture, in modern time, and I would extend that back to 18th century writers, you know, Western writers, um, is an attempt to kind of you know go into that trajectory of exploring the farther reaches of human experience and the mind and transcendence, but without spiritual grounding. Yes, that's exactly right. With no no spiritual component. The the eros is the driving force, and yes. and there and there's no no spiritual aspect to it at all. You know, Graham was you know torn between these two poles of the expression of his music, and what drugs did for him in the pursuit of it or the avoidance of it, and the transcendence and the music and the uh, anesthetization from whatever the music brought him was the drugs, and you know, he couldn't have one without the other. Maybe that's kind of a good way to lead out the discussion here, which is that we go back to these three anchor points of risk-taking, novelty-seeking, and compulsivity, that if they exist of their, like, of their own accord without any, any kind of psychological mooring, then they become destructive forces, but not inherently so. Right. If you're novelty-seeking for novelty's sake if you're risk-taking for risk's sake, if you're compulsive just out of compulsivity without any focal point, then they bec- you become aimless. Well, you touch on something really interesting, which is if you, if you read about like great mountaineers and rock climbers, for example, one thing that the layperson press always misunderstands is that in some way these people are compulsive risk-takers. But the truly great climbers are very much the opposite. You know, they're problem solvers. They're always going prepared. They like risk, and and they seek it as a sense as a source of transcendence and and identity creating. But it isn't compulsive or self-destructive, right? The the great climbers are neither of those things, and people must misunderstand them as such when in fact it's a highly disciplined endeavor. So it it goes to something order of of meditation or having a spiritual aspect because the discipline to cope with what for others would be overwhelming emotions, overwhelming perceptions when you're hanging off a 3000 foot wall by your fingertips is tempered by all the discipline, all the preparation and, and no compulsivity about it. And I'm sure there are other examples we could come up with for each of those three things where each of those three things functions as some kind of positive driver. Well, as somebody who has written a lot and lectured, you know, on high-profile individuals, you know, cultural figures, you know, I, I, I would put it to you, you know, off the top of your head, if you, I mean, I can already think of people we've already talked about, Miles Davis being one of them, people who come from formality and training and discipline. Mm. And then, then from there, that's a jumping off point to leap without a parachute. You know, train is obviously one of those. Who? Coltrane is obviously one of those, John Coltrane. Even Sun Ra, who was raised, you know, who went to music uh, conservatories and played with conventional jazz bands and just threw it all away. Found found another path. He's one also. Or even, you know, a lot of the great blues musicians were raised in true 17th century apprenticeships Mm -hmm. and came up the hard way, Mm -hmm. working under very strict taskmasters to learn to learn their uh, craft. What would you say about, if you're willing to, talk a little bit about your own process? Because you've written a number of books and you've certainly traveled uh, a lot and, you know, worn a lot of hats, you know. My own process is just a continual struggle to, to fight the various demons. 
continual struggle to get out of my own way and create with ease. And perfectionism was a huge issue for me. I was blocked on the grand book and actually hypnosis helped me get through my block. Mm. And um, who were you comparing yourself to? Like some ephemeral idea of a perfectionist ideal of yourself or I had pretty emotionally abusive parents. So I think it mm. came from them. Mm. And my father was particularly difficult and he died right before I started writing the grand book. So I always assumed oh, really? he was like the, the, the bugaboo. And, and also just, I think just trying to be perfect. Uh, This is funny. I wrote advertising and commercials, you know, for a long time. And this perfectionism was a real issue in that pursuit. Right. And then a friend of mine who was in the business, and this was a huge breakthrough for me with perfectionism, said to me, your smartest clients can't tell the difference between your A plus work and your A minus work. Absolutely. But your dumbest clients can tell the difference between your C plus work and no work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good axiom. Yeah. So I'm take that one up. Yeah. So if it's due, hand it in. Yeah. And that really helped me um, with perfectionism. And then also I think teaching where I was able to have very rigorous preparation and then improvise off that preparation was very, very helpful in my other writing. Right. And that was really important for process. And then – like kind of a, to, to, to build a kind of um, a, a point of, like, you know, some preparation for confidence from which yes. to go. And, and I know that we, you and I talked about this. Wait, I hope I haven't lost it. We talked about, um, oh, shoot. I just completely lost it. It was along those lines about um, just coming to accept the work you did. I know that we've talked about this a lot, mm-hmm. that it, it really is a great breakthrough to, ex- oh, oh, it was um, just a breakthrough to, to accept the level that you're working on and say, yes, this is my work. I mean, this is as good as going to be, and I will live with this work at this moment to put it forth. And when you think about, like we talk about Miles and Picasso, who made all their mistakes in public, who, who fought their way out of dead ends and cul-de-sacs. That that's something to remember when you're fighting your way through your own cul-de-sacs is just keep pushing against the work somehow. Just keep pushing on it. Did you say in that story about Beethoven that he – those strips that he put over as corrections were essentially the same correction over and over again? Was that They it? were exactly the same correction over and over and over. He I read it. Yeah, I read, a, I read a piece – what you just said is so pertinent. I read a piece about George O'Keefe recently, and it was a, an amalgamation of different interviews. And, and again, we're back to this, these ideas like, are you just trying to be a maverick or are you just trying to be yourself? Right. You know, maverick right. for maverick's sake, just to prove something to somebody you've internalized or right. you know, like your father or whatever. But, you know, she, we, we, and this is also another thing that I think people have to wrestle is, is, is the projection of the public. There's the path that you're walking and trying to cut new ground and fulfill some kind of inspiration or you know, kind of drive within yourself that manifests in its own particular way. And then there's how people create you in their own mind and try and hold you to that. And that can right, be bad. If you think about that stuff, you're just That's doomed. fame. We're talking about fame. Right. And you're just doomed. Happily, I've never had to deal with fame. <laughs> so <laughs> so George I don't know Keefe, uh, George O'Keefe talks about how, you know, we you look back over her career and of course she's really celebrated and, you know, um, and, and critically acclaimed, you know, artist. But back in the day she was a woman in the early part of the 20th century 
and her work was ridiculed. That's right. Uh, people said it was uh, too pretty, and you know she did floral images, and you know used too many colors. And she said, "I like pretty, and I like colors." Yeah. So she just kept doing it. But she was driven by compulsion, and she said, "You know, I moved out to the desert where you are now, not very, not very far from where you are, Taos." If you, if you go to where she painted, yeah. when she left Taos uh, to go out to the Ghost Ranch, talk about the middle of nowhere. Right. I mean, even now, if you want a bag of potato chips, it's 25 minutes. <laughs> so I couldn't imagine what it was then. And that really is a kind of compulsion and trusting the self. But what struck, me, find, what oh, sorry, struck me, yeah, what struck me about that story, she said, so I moved out in the middle of nowhere and I had this, you know, this farmhouse. And she said, I painted the same door 20 times. Right. Right. You know, that's discipline. That's yes, not that necessarily compulsion. Dis- that is discipline, and to live where she lived and be as productive as she was, it was pure discipline. She Distractions were not an issue for her. She didn't need them close by. She didn't think about them. She was there to work. And it's, it's, it's always awe-inspiring for me to come across people like her who are just going to do the work no matter what. Yeah, and it goes back to your point about um, – being a victim of our own perfectionism and, and how you say that we are where we are developmentally. But the point is, is you have to complete that. Complete it in? In the sense of fulfilling it. If, if you if you think that you're supposed oh, yes, to be somewhere you're not. Yes, if you're paralyzed you're by your On either side of your ego, right? Yeah, you've got to finish the piece. Right. You've got to finish the piece one way or another. Right. But see, the way that so many people avoid that trap is they don't start. Yeah. Because the, the horror of starting is you got to finish. And not only you got to finish, you got to finish as good as you can do it. And that will really keep people from picking up the brush, picking up the guitar, starting to type. And the what goes along with that is that nobody writes a great first draft. Every first draft is shite. And when you see right. that shite first draft, it's so dispiriting. And you have to try to remember that everybody does one. And I'm talking about any art form. And then you yes. got to do the second draft. That's hard. Well, and no I wonder if you want to have some heroin after you see that first draft. Seriously. Well, I, I worked with <laughs> I worked with a producer who who worked who knew Leonard Cohen, and he said he was at Cohen's house, and he and Cohen pulled out a, a, a like a you know like a uh, not a nightstand but a little drawer right from a desk, and there were a hundred verses for first we take Manhattan. <laughs> And he said he looked at he looked at writing as his occupation. He'd get up in the morning. He'd he said he would work for you know till lunch on a on the bridge of a song. You know, so when we look at work that is like really well crafted, you know, it's the, the the fallacy that we that that creativity is innate that you have talent and you just kind of get out of right. your own way and let your talent right. flow forth. You know, I think is really misleading and paralyzing for a lot of people as well. They don't see the hard work that goes into. The discipline of it. The There's a story that, that I don't know if it's – I put it in the grand book, but it's something that I heard from uh, Bernie Ledden of the Eagles and that the Eagles tell the story. You know I hate the Eagles, uh, but I'll still quote them I, on I came across, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm not that thrilled about Jackson Brown, but that they lived downstairs in Jackson Brown and that every morning they, would, they could hear his piano. He would get up and start working on a song and get to the point that had flungished him the day before. And then try to work to push through that point. Right. And that he was never stopped by dissatisfaction with his own work, which I think stops 
so many people, and it might be the difference between artists and non-artists, is that even when you see that, even when you hate what you've done, or you know you, you're at an obstacle, you just keep battering at that obstacle. Yeah, it was the, it was a disservice that Malcolm Gladwell did, I think, you know, in his in his uh, work, um, was it Tipping Point or Outliers, that put across the theory of the 10,000 hours, and then people yeah, sort of... Crap. Yeah, because but the scholar, but the the scholar behind that um, was equally disavowed, you know, or or dismayed yeah, with how yeah. that was misinterpreted because it's not yeah. ten thousand hours. Ten thousand hours represents what's called you know, automatic thinking. You get right. something that becomes into what we call muscle memory, right? And but but people who then move into high functioning, like you know, greatness, right? At at, at a skill. For example, a violinist will not, you know, just play the same piece over and over again to get it perfect. They pick the most difficult passage. That's right. And that's what they focus on for six, eight hours a or, day. Or I, I know nothing about golf, but I know that, like Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods, whenever they finished a round in a tournament, whatever they did worse, they would go out and practice it. Right. At the end of that round. Right. Yeah. It's funny, it's reminded me of a story. I lived in New York, and I had a neighbor who was a, a classical music student at Juilliard. And I didn't know her. We would just nod hello in the elevator. I never had a conversation with her. And one day she knocked on my door and said, you know, my, my final my final piece, you know, not her audition piece, like her graduation piece or whatever, was coming up, and would I, would, would I come listen to her play it? And she had an apartment that was about six inches bigger than her piano, <laughs> and I lay on the floor and listened to her play this piece. I couldn't tell whether it was great or terrible. I know nothing about classical music. Right. And she wasn't trying to have some connection with me. She just needed somebody in there while she played it. Mm-hmm. That she was going to play it in front of people and she needed somebody in there. Mm-hmm. And I lay on the floor between the legs of the piano. It was the only place to be. Wow. And it was not the furtherance of any other relationship. And I understood that. She didn't want to hang out. She wanted a live body in there while she played the music. And I think there's something. Yes, a witness, exactly. And there's something really integral to the whole artistic experience. And I always admired her courage for recognizing that she needed it. Mine was the apartment closest to her. That's why she knocked on my door. This, that's, you know. A witness, exactly. We're going to have to have another conversation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But, but on that thought, like, we maybe end here, but, but, you know, not, not too perfunctory, you know, because, Back to the theory of you know self self development, cultivation of self, artist or not, is reconciling. This is certainly a Jungian point of view. You know, Jung talked about the arc of one's life, particularly you know, the midpoint being midlife, to come into one's own, right, in the sense of shedding one's dependencies. Yes. The the identities or the you know like I said about Morrison the scaffolding on which we built ourselves on, on the, the personalities or influences of others the shadow and um, this idea of witness you know I practice in my in my therapy practice I almost exclusively practice EMDR therapy and EMDR I characterize as a kind of witnessing type of therapy you're self stimulating the client into engaging the the processing that they would do when they're when they're asleep so they're not in the conscious mind and their physiology can process the most disturbing experiences and 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 reconcile them so we awake and we can kind of tackle the day at hand without holding on to things that preoccupy us and or you know mobilize us and and i think going back to talk about graham 
this seems quite poignant to me, that the ability to hold witness to oneself and not be dependent upon others, whether, whether it's Keith Richards or your audience or the audience you never had, and that seems to me the breaking point of, of sanity and holding oneself. To and, and to accept a witness means escaping shame. Right. To say, I am seen and I acknowledge I am seen. Well, you've got to escape shame to get to that point. Or at least not be identified with the shame. Okay, not identified with shame. And someone in Grant's position never could. And it, it, it goes back to this type of protection and compassion, but the need for the witness and the need to somehow evolve past shame and embracing the witness is evolving past shame. You know, the, I think the most heartbreaking section of your book um, and it really, that book really did touch me because, you know, I didn't, like a lot of people, I, as much as I felt I was kind of on the inside of Graham's story or Towns Van Zandt's story, it's only until you get into the, the deep biography that you really, you get the nuanced view of their of their whole life. And, you know, the, the, the denouement of this idealized or renaissanced, you know, notion of him going to Nelcott when Stones were doing Exile on Main Street. And this is brotherhood with Keith Richards. It, in the way you describe it, it's absolutely devastating. You know, I mean, I can I can resonate with that sense of you know, um, I can't even find the words. Just to, to the cliff on which the ego just tumbles. You know, that you feel you've reached this pinnacle of of witness. You know, the shared experience, and it's not right. yours. That's right. And you're suddenly on the outside looking in, and it's That's and right. it's there's no way to. There's no way to um, to handle that moment. And you're seeing people manifest, but you can't manifest. You're seeing people who are as crazy and fucked up as they want to be, but whether it's noon or two in the afternoon, they go down to the basement and get to work. Right. And they relentlessly get to work. They may be relentlessly shooting smack every night, but they relentlessly get to work. And that's something he could never do. And I think that's also part of why it was so crushing. Hmm. To stay on his own, to stay on his own path and have a sense of movement. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Make this is great, just great. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. We got to do it again. All right, thanks so okay. much, man. And it's great to see you. You too. It's great yeah, to we'll, see we'll we'll connect again out in in an unofficial way. Okay. Thanks so much right. for this. Take okay. care. Well, there you have it. That was my conversation with the brilliant and eloquent David N. Meyer, cinema studies professor, screenwriter, and author. You can check out his books. 20,000 Roads, The Ballad of Graham Parsons and His Cosmic American Music, The Bee Gees, The Biography, and A Girl and a Gun, The Complete Guide to Film Noir. Look forward to uh, part two of that conversation. David and I have a lot more to talk about. And uh, in the meantime, take care of yourselves out there. It's a crazy world. And uh, you can uh, look us up on Facebook at Mind Whisperer, uh, on Podbean, or on iTunes. Spread the word. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.